Let's continue on with our worship this morning. In Matthew chapter 19, we're finishing out the chapter today. I'm going to read you the account of the rich young man, but we're actually focusing on the dialogue that follows after it. So we'll pick it up in verse 16, but we're going to be looking at specifically 23 to 30. We're going to be looking at a couple different passages today. They're all the same thing, but they're, we need to look at them side by side. So if you have your Bible this morning, the main text we're, we're preaching on, focusing on is from Matthew 19, the rich young ruler, and then the dialogue that follows afterwards, Jesus interacting with Peter. This is between Jesus and Peter. Of course, all the other disciples are observing this and witnessing this dialogue. We're going to look at the corresponding dialogues that are also recorded in Mark and Luke. So uh, take that bulletin, rip off a piece of paper off of that thing, find your way to Mark chapter 10, stick a bookmark in there, rip off another piece of paper, find your way to Luke chapter 18, stick another bookmark in there, and then also find your way to Revelation chapter 20, rip off, if you have any bulletin left at that point, rip off another piece and stick a paper in there. And we're going to be flipping to all of those this morning. Main text will be on the screen behind me, and then um, we're just going to cross-reference and flip to the rest of the other, the other passages. Before we jump into this morning, I want to make one clarifying remark. I absolutely will not be preaching on the fact that the eye of the needle is some sort of a gate in Jerusalem. If you uh, were in church as a kid, if you grew up in Sunday school, uh, probably not for this current generation of kids, like our kids probably will have no knowledge of that, but if you're from my generation, the millennial generation and older, on back to the baby boomers and so forth, uh, Sunday school material, Bible study material, undoubtedly would say something along the lines of, you know, they'd read this thing where Jesus says, you know, it's easier for an, a camel to go through the eye of the needle than it is for a rich person to go to heaven. They'd read that and they'd be like, you see, you know, it was an amazing statement and it almost defies description. They would twist it and then they would say, well, I, actually what Jesus is referring to here is, you know, there's this gate in Jerusalem it's one of the many different gates, you know, that they had in Jerusalem. And they called it the Needle Gate or the Camel's Gate. It was a low sort of opening in the wall. And uh, it wasn't like, you know, normal seven, eight foot high type of thing. Anybody that went through that gate had to kind of get down on their hands and knees and kind of like, you know, you know crawl through it. And uh, the camels had to crawl through it. And if, if you were my height or Ryan Blindberg's height, you'd probably be doing the military army man crawl through it. But at normal height, people could probably just kind of stoop down and get under it. Which begs the question, what idiot would build a gate so low that you had to crawl through it? No idiot would do that. Um, and there's no historical or archaeological evidence that such a gate ever existed. What it really boils down to is scholars had a real hard time understanding what Jesus was saying when he said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. The word, the Greek word here is very specific. He's talking about a needle, like a sewing needle, like what you would use to work on fabric to sew. And the eye of the needle, which is what anybody here who's ever done any sewing, you know what he's talking about. He's talking about that little hole that nobody, unless you're a seamstress, you work with needles all the time, nobody in their right mind could even get a piece of thread through that thing. I have tried. My wife has a sewing machine. We ha I'm, I'm licking the thing, I'm, you know, and I don't know how she does it. But that's what Jesus is saying. A full-grown camel, which, you know, they're going to be seven, eight foot tall, giant animal from the Middle East, trying to squeeze that thing through the eye of a needle, tiny hole. I think it's best policy just to take Jesus literally, to just to take him at his word and not to go looking for some crazy door that for whatever reason they built that was so low you had to crawl through it. That makes no sense. There's no evidence that that thing ever existed. 
So, so box done. Let us read. Matthew 19, verse 16. And behold, a man came to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, Okay, which ones? I can do that. Like, just tell me what I need to do. And of course, this is a sort of an interesting response because obviously you have to keep all of the commandments. But Jesus decides to specify. So he says to him, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother. And then Leviticus 19, the one that sort of sums the whole thing up, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, love everybody the exact same way that you love yourself, take care of yourself. So the young man says to him, rather incredulously, as far as we can tell, all these things I have kept, so I've done all of it. I'm perfect. What do I still lack? Indicating that even though he thinks he's perfect, he still senses on some level that he's still spiritually broken. He knows there's something wrong with him. Of course, we would also disagree with his assessment of his so-called perfection. So Jesus answers him, verse 21, If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the literal eye of a literal sewing needle. I'm inserting the word literal there than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So it's very difficult, is what Jesus is saying. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, well, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them, and he said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things, all things are possible. And Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. We've left it all. We've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Verse 28, Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father, or mother, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Let's pray. Lord, open our eyes to see this morning what you would have us to see. Speak to our hearts. We pray your spirit would illuminate the text before us, that your spirit would also give us faith to believe and to obey. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A number of years ago, there was a movie that was put out by Morgan Freeman and Jack Nicholson. They were the actors that starred in it. The name of the movie was The Bucket List. And essentially, the concept of the movie was that uh, there's this guy, he had cancer, he was dying. There were a number of things, a number of experiences, and a number of goals that he wanted to achieve before he died. And so there was a euphemism that was employed in the movie to describe the concept of impending death, kicking the bucket one last time. So that was sort of the euphemism. And, and the concept was there's all these things we need to do before we kick the bucket one last time. Hence, the invention of this term, 
bucket list. Now, what was amazing is that this term, I, I began to hear it repeated throughout church circles. And it seemed that a number of Christians were talking about things that they wanted to accomplish or things that they wanted to do before they kicked the proverbial bucket. And that there's nothing necessarily wrong with that, if, depending on how you're talking about it. As I would listen uh, to different Christians engaging in conversations about their, their quote-unquote bucket list, it seemed clear to me that there was something that was fundamentally missing from our understanding uh, in terms of things that we want to do or things that we want to accomplish before we die. My my understanding is whenever Hollywood or whenever pop culture comes out with something and the church latches onto it and, and embraces it as a part of their life philosophy, it's because that we in the leadership of the church have failed to mention something or to remind you of something that is clearly contained within the scriptures. If for any second you find a philosophy or an ideology or a practice that is proclaimed by the world that is meaningful to you, that sort of fills this hole in your heart, it is because we have neglected or failed in some respects to tell you about something far, far better that is found within the scriptures. I have found that people are longing for those experiences or longing to achieve certain goals to to find certain degree of fulfillment in these experiences that they can have in this life. And within Christianity, what I have found is that there is this understanding that we're going to live this life, and then we're going to die, and then come heaven and the new earth, we don't really know what those events will look like, but we can safely conclude that this earth will be gone and uh, whatever experiences we might have had on this earth, we'll never have the opportunity to have those experiences again. Hence, many Christians are talking about what they want to do before they die. They are developing a bucket list. Now, for the younger generation amongst us, such as Andrew, teenagers, and the younger group, they don't refer to it as a bucket list because they're still young. They have their whole life ahead of them. They have turned this concept into a battle cry. YOLO. <laughs> you know where I'm going with this, particularly if you worked in VBS two years ago. We had a couple of interns that introduced me to this term. It's an acronym, Y-O-L-O. -O. Sebastian, are you familiar with the term? Oh, okay. It's already probably shifted. I'm two years out of date at this point. I can't, you know... <laughs> I do my best to keep up with the, the younger teenage culture, but anyway. Um, two years ago, so I'm a little dated now, this term was popular, YOLO, you only live once, Y-O-L-O, -O, you only live once, okay? So whereas the younger generation says, I have this bucket list of things I want to do before I kick the bucket, the younger generation is saying, YOLO, you know, we got to do this. Uh, I was down in Grand Forks with these guys, and they decided that we should go down, the, the smart thing to do would be to go down to this bridge that was over crossing over this river there in Grand Forks. And uh, I didn't know how deep it was and hadn't gone out into the water to, to sort of assess the depth of it. And this bridge was about 40, 40 feet off the water. You were there, that about right, I'd say. Pretty close, about 40 feet. If it's like six inches of water, you're going to die, okay? Um, you couldn't really see the bottom of it, not because it was so deep you couldn't see the bottom of it, because it's muddy water. You don't really know how deep it is. Um, and so they're up there on this bridge. They're like, let's jump off into that thing. And I'm like, mm -hmm. you know, I've fallen and broken my back once already. You know, that wasn't the most enjoyable experience. And then the one guy just stripped off his shirt and goes, YOLO, and hits the water. And we're like, you know, as the 
adult in charge who's responsible. I was like, horrified. You, you know? <laughs> and of course, it was about, the water was about eight feet. So you did touch bottom when you hit, but you could survive, I guess. It was super cold. Um, that was the other thing I noticed when I jumped in. But um, <laughs> at any rate, YOLO, you only live once. In other words, I'm plunging to an uncertain ending here, but I'm having so much fun while I do it. YOLO, you only live once. So I said to them, <clears throat> you guys are you're Christians. Yeah. Um, what about the concept... This applies equally to bucket list practitioners as well as YOLO, war cry, yellers. I don't know what to call you, sorry. Um, <laughs> rather than YOLO, how about YALA? And Coover, one of the interns that was with us that year, he says, YALA? What is that? Like some weird way of... Christianly proclaiming the praises of Allah? And I was like, no. Yes, let's worship Allah. That totally is consistent with my theology. He says, well, what are you saying, man? Yala, what is this? How about rather than YOLO, you only live once, Yala, you are living again. And that's what Jesus is saying in the text before us this morning. Makes a statement. Look with me. Verse 23. Truly I say to you, with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. What is the problem? This guy was offered the opportunity to give away all of his worldly possessions and follow Jesus. If he had done that, Christ's promise to him was that he would have been perfect. He would have had treasure in heaven. It would have been great. He would have inherited eternal life. Of course, he says, no, because my money matters more to me than giving it all up to follow you. Jesus' statement now, so the rich dude walks away, he's sorrowful, he's grieving, he knows he can't let go of his money, even though he also knows he should to follow Christ, he just can't make that decision. He leaves. Jesus turns to his disciples, he makes the statement, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven, which should give us all incredible pause. What Christ is saying here is that whatever is necessary on a spiritual level for us to go to heaven, riches and monetary wealth present a significant threat to that. There is a spiritual danger in material wealth. There is no other way to understand Christ's words, which means if any of us here today make it our number one goal to advance in our career, to gain a bunch of possessions, to have material possessions or material wealth, we need to understand that Jesus is giving a cautionary note here. That cannot be what we pursue because the pursuit of that, the attainment of those things, jeopardizes our walk with Christ. He goes on. True, he says again, verse 24, again, I, say you, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. In other words, this ridiculous picture, and there, I'm, it's intended to be ridiculous. I'm not going to try. There's no historical evidence for some sort of gate in Jerusalem where people got down their hands and knees and crawled under it. The picture is absurd because it's supposed to convey the idea of impossibility. My three, four-year-old daughter, Olive, will tell you, you cannot take a camel, which she has seen having been to the zoo, and put it through a needle, which she has seen having held a needle. In explaining this passage to her, I'm like, okay, here's a little piece of thread. 
We'll put it through there. Dad, 36, 30, I'll be 36 this year. Dad can't do it, okay? Dad can't do it. I can't put a thread through the needle. My four-year-old can't put a thread through a needle. So I say to her, can you put a camel through? No. She's like, that's ridiculous. And that's the point. It's utterly impossible. That's the thrust of what Jesus is saying here. We're not, the worst thing we should do is go looking for random ways of what Jesus might be talking about. His whole point is to say it's impossible for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven, which is mind-boggling. You would think that a rich person would not face the same temptations. You would think that a rich person would not succumb to the same spiritual dangers. You would think that a person with wealth would have the luxury, the leisure, and the freedom to do all that God required of them. You would think that wealth would actually enable a person to be a more devoted follower of Christ. The disciples hear Christ's statement, and they are shocked. They're shocked for two reasons. Number one, wealth ought to enable you to give single-hearted devotion to the Lord, undistracted time to prayer. You don't have to worry about getting up and going to work in the morning. You don't have to worry about how you're going to feed your family that day. You could, in theory, being wealthy, give your whole time to prayer and fasting and worshiping the Lord. They understood money was a means to an end, and if a man had money, he could attain whatever ends he aspired to. Sure, some men would use their wealth for unrighteous, unholy purposes, but surely there would be some men out there who would use their wealth for noble purposes, such as worshiping God. But Jesus' statement slaps them in the face and says, no, that is actually not true. The second reason why this would shock them is because the disciples understood that wealth was a clear indication of God's favor with you. In the generation in which they grew up, the culture in which they lived, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and these religious guys, they were invariably wealthy, extremely wealthy. The disciples, and we have numerous writings from the rabbis from this period in time, the disciples understood that if a man, and it wasn't like you just, they didn't have our whole theology today of name it and claim it and the whole health and wealth prosperity gospel, but they understood clearly because it is taught in the scriptures if you keep your nose to the grindstone, you work hard, I mean, you, you peruse the book of Proverbs, the book of Ecclesiastes, it's like a master's level dissertation um, on economics and, and how to do well making money. I mean, there's a lot of really solid and incredible advice there. And so they understood, okay, if you actually work hard, you do what the Bible says, you handle your finances and your money the way that the Bible says, then you ought to be able to be really well off. They have forgotten the message of Job. Yes, it's true. If you order your financial affairs the way that the Lord would have you, there is every reason to expect that you will increase financially and materially. But here's the classic mistake that they made. Time and chance happens to us all, and sometimes, just like with Job, the Lord, certain people, regardless of how they've lived their lives, the Lord does, at times, choose to take money away. At times, he does choose to afflict us with poverty, to be in want, to have need. He has higher purposes in it. They had missed that mistake. The disciples, they had made that mistake. They had missed that notion from the book of Job. The disciples believed that if you truly lived life the way the Lord wanted you to live life, he would bless you materially. So they have two things that are haunting them right now. If I was rich, I would have the freedom to worship God undistractedly. People who are rich have the freedom to worship God because 
They have done a good job of worshiping God their whole lives, hence the material prosperity that they're experiencing. And Jesus' statement sweeps all of that aside. Everything you think you know about the Lord's blessing of rich people and granting of wealth here and money there says, listen, none of that, none of that counts. Indeed, the attainment of material wealth presents many, many more dangers to your spiritual walk with the Lord than benefits. And this is clear in the New Testament if you have eyes to, in the Old Testament if you have eyes to see it. Contrary to what they were taught, contrary to what the Pharisees taught, I'm just going to quote you one passage, Proverbs 30, 7 and 9. The book of Proverbs are many good quotes, many good Proverbs that talk about the right way to handle your money. But at the end of the book, there's this statement. Two things I ask of you. This is the wise man, the sage, praying to God. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Call it his bucket list. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. In other words, what he's saying is, I just want to be middle class. I don't want to be poor. I don't want to be rich. Feed me only with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Too little money gives you the temptation of theft. Too little money leads you into a place where you don't trust God to meet your physical needs. And too much money leads you to a place where you don't need God for your physical needs. And both are equally dangerous. Jesus says it's easier for a, rich, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to go to heaven. So Peter, being shocked at this notion, says, who then can be saved? Because, you know, we thought well, the rich guys were good to go. And Jesus' statement is, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Salvation cannot be bought. It never could be bought. And God's favor isn't bestowed on the wealthy or the prestigious or the socially elite among us. Those things have absolutely no bearing and no standing with God. When Peter says, well, then who gets to be saved? In effect, Jesus' response is, don't be shocked that man is incapable of saving himself. The real shocker is that as bad as man is, God can save man. This guy, presumably, he's polite, he's sophisticated. He's essentially everything you'd expect to find on an episode of Downton Abbey. And yet, he's not good enough for heaven. Who can be saved? God can save anybody. Jesus' response is, 
don't think so much, don't focus so much on what you can or can't do to get to heaven. Because you can't do anything. Focus instead on what God can or can't do to get you to heaven. Because God can do anything. The focus is not on you and your capacity or your abilities or what you are competent or capable of or what financial material possessions you have. There's nothing you can do. There's no price you can pay. You are utterly helpless. Focus instead on the amazing truth that there is nothing beyond God's ability. Now, in following Jesus, because his statement to the rich guy was, follow me. If you follow me, if you follow Jesus, you go to heaven. So the rich guy isn't going to make it because he didn't follow Jesus. Peter, looking at the situation, hearing Jesus' response that money and social status and none of those things matter, following Jesus is what matters, now asks a really great question. Verse 27. Truly, er, sorry, see, look, observe, Jesus, check it out. We have left everything and followed you. We know Matthew, the guy writing the book, had a very lucrative tax-collecting business. Made him the scourge of all of his fellow Jews, but... He was financially set, very wealthy. Peter, James, John, these guys had a thriving fishing business, probably not on the level of like a Bass Pro shop or anything like that, but it met their needs, it provided for their families. All these other guys had various occupations, and Jesus said, come, follow me. They laid all that stuff down, and they followed Jesus. All their money, their careers, their livelihoods, everything that they would rely upon to provide them with the stability to get through life, they sacrificed all of that in order to make following Christ their priority. Peter asks the question, because it's got to be hitting him at this point. If we sacrifice everything that we have in this life to follow you, what is there for us? Lots of people today Make the statement. Give your money to God and He will bless you tenfold with money back. I was reminded, I was going through my bookshelf and I had a book on my shelf, a guy named Ron Parsley. You don't need to look him up. He's, he's already faded into yesteryear of evangelical noteworthies. But in 2002, he wrote a book called In 2002, Whatever you give to the Lord will be doubled back to you. And then he argued that you should give him your money. You know, if you have $10,000 in the bank, give it to Ron Parsley and his ministry, and the Lord will double it. You will, by the end of 2002, have $20,000. How, and this is great. I love this. This is a wonderful, wonderful theology. This is great, great biblical exegesis. So how do you come to that conclusion? Because it is 2002. No, that's the end of it. You're looking for more. But there's not. It was a 157-page book, give or take, on the year 2002. 
You see, if you're not getting it, I'll explain it to you. See, there's a two, and then there's two zeros, and then there's another two. So if you give money to the Lord in 2002, he's going to double your money. You're looking at me like you're expecting more. I'm telling you, there's nothing more. That's it. You should be laughing now. Because if you're thinking, oh, man, I missed it, 2002, you deserve to have all your money taken. Like, you shouldn't be taking that argument seriously. You know, and there are a lot of preachers, this guy's drifted off into the dustbin of charlatans. But there are other charlatans out there who will say, if you give all your money to the Lord, you'll get it back a hundredfold over in this life. This is a critical question. Because Peter's question is, you know, we have given you everything. We have followed you. We have trusted you for everything. It's not like you're giving money to Ron Parsley. It's not like you're giving money to Joshua Clay Camp. You're giving money to Jesus. You're walking away from everything to follow Jesus. This is a direct one-to-one transfer. We're not going through any mediary. We're giving money to Jesus. And Peter's statement is, we've given everything. We've sacrificed everything. We walked away from everything to follow you. What do we get? If anything in prosperity theology is true, if God is going to bless anyone with material benefits, with material wealth and possessions, you'd expect this is the moment. This is when Jesus says, okay, I'll tell you what, you give me everything and this is when he ought to be clear with his guys, right? That's what you'd expect. Listen to what he says. Verse 28, truly I say to you in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit on twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Many who are first will be last and the last first. Now, stop there for a second. You need to note, if you're reading from the ESV, there's a little footnote there. It says, truly I say to you, in the new world. Why they chose it to interpret it that way is beyond me. I could wager a guess it has to do with eschatology and theological considerations in that regard. The Greek word here is polygenesis. Poly meaning a second time, to do something a second time. Genesis, you're familiar with the transliterated word. You bring genesis over into English, just transliterate straight over. It's genesis. comes from Greek verb genomai, to be or to come into existence. Literally, what the word means here, which the ESV has translated the new world, literally means regeneration in the rebirth or the renewal or the regeneration to come into existence a second time. So Christ's statement is, you do prosper, you do benefit, you do receive. If you follow him, if you make doing his will the goal of your life in day-to-day walking, he promises whatever that might cost you, whether it be property whether it be family, whether it be moms and dads or sons and daughters, whatever following Jesus might cost you, the promise is here that he will give it back to you a hundredfold. So that if following Jesus means you are persecuted because you stand up for the name of Christ, you live in some country where religious freedom isn't the norm, they take your house, don't worry about it. Christ says there's a hundred houses coming. If following Jesus means that, God forbid it, in some weird, strange way, it leads to a breaking of your relationship, even with your mother or your father or sons and daughters, as horrific as it might be to think that following Christ might lead you to a path where you would have to choose against the closest of family members 
Christ's promises in the new life, you get a hundredfold over. The temptation that we have when we make the choice to follow Christ is the temptation of the bucket list, the temptation of YOLO, the thought that somehow following Jesus while good will in some way deprive me of some benefit, some experience, some blessing that I can only receive in this life. And Jesus' statement is, no, that's not true. It is not true. You say, Clay Camp, in verse 28, it says, and the ESV translates it, new world, you just told me, in the rebirth, the regeneration. That sounds like when we die and go to heaven. And the more biblically astute of you will probably say, in fact, Mark or, or Luke chapter 18 makes it clear. I want you to go with me. Now, stick your finger here, and we need to do a little flipping. I want to look at all three of these passages together. Go to Mark chapter 10. That's where we're going first. Mark chapter 10. We're going to pick it up in verse 29. It's the same account, rich young ruler. Here's Jesus' response. Peter's like, well, we've left everything. We followed you. Verse 29. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands. Exact same statement as Matthew. For my sake and for the gospel, verse 30, look carefully, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. That's a little different than what we read in Matthew. Who will not receive now in this time a hundredfold, and he goes on to elaborate all of that stuff. You know, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, lands, persecutions, in the age to come, eternal life. Mark presents us with a little different statement than Matthew. Matthew, Jesus says, in the regeneration, if you've left anything for my name's sake, you get it back a hundredfold. Mark says, if you've left anything for my name's sake, now in this time, you get it back a hundredfold, and in the age to come, you get eternal life. That's a little different. In Matthew... He says regeneration, and in Mark, he says now in this time. Go with me to Luke, chapter 18. Pick it up in verse 29 again. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children. Now, he makes a slightly different statement. In Matthew and in Mark, it was for the sake of Christ's name, And then Mark says, for the sake of Christ's name and for the gospel. Luke says it a little differently. Anybody who's left anything for the sake of the kingdom of God. And then he says here, who will not receive many more times in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Matthew makes no reference of receiving anything in this time. Matthew says it's in the regeneration. Mark and Luke say in this time. And then they say there's also another time coming in which you will receive eternal life. So which is it? Is this a contradiction within the scriptures? The question is pivotal because whatever is being said here, this is the promise that we have. We've got at least two time periods that are being referenced. This time, whatever this time is or what this time might mean, and then an age to come, eternal life. How do we answer these questions? What does this time mean? Just on its surface, 
just reading it straight out of the text, you would conclude that this time means right now, this period of history, 2016, 2017. You'd think that the promise that Jesus is offering you it, when he says he gives you a hundredfold whatever you've lost, if it costs you your house and you live in, say, you live in Kamloops and following Jesus in some weird way, standing up for the name of Christ in some weird way means that you lose your house. Say you live in Sahali, your house is taken from you. Just to read this thing at face value, it sounds like what Christ is saying is in this time, you get a hundred houses in Sahali. Some of you are thinking, well, I don't need a hundred houses in Sahali. Maybe one there and another one down the shoe swap would be great. <laughs> hey, I'm right there with you. I mean, who needs a hundred houses on one street, really? That's kind of silly. But that's kind of what it sounds like Jesus is saying. Then he makes the statement, the age to come, eternal life. The age to come sounds like things that don't end. It is eternal. It is unending. It is never ceasing. This age now and the age to come. How do we reconcile these differences? Go with me to Revelation 20. This is the problem with YOLO, and this is the problem with bucket lists. I'm not saying it's wrong to not want to achieve certain goals. I'm not saying it's wrong that you should want to do things before you die that are meaningful. What I am saying is we need to allow Christ to redefine for us what constitutes something truly meaningful. Here's what he says. This is the resolution to the question, what does Christ mean when he says this time and then in the age to come, eternal life? The Bible is unambiguously clear that Christ is coming back at the end of this time, this time period, that he is going to destroy the works of evil, he is going to destroy the power of the enemy, he is going to destroy the spirit and the person of Antichrist. He talks about what that will look like here in Revelation chapter 20. Verse 1, I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain, and he seized the dragon. This is a simile, this is a metaphor for Satan. So he seized Satan that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, in case you didn't see it coming, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit. So for a thousand years, Satan is bound. He's in a pit. He's not allowed out. He threw him into the pit and he shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. There is a period of time coming in this time in which Satan is bound, no longer allowed to work his horrific, murderous schemes. Bound in a bottomless pit, sealed, cut off from humanity for at least a thousand years. Verse 4, then I saw thrones. Now here is where this is significant. What did Jesus say to the disciples in Matthew? What did he say? Do you remember? You who have followed me will sit on thrones. Jesus 
talking through the prophet John, is saying here, Satan is taken away for a thousand years, and then he looks and he sees thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Notice the word judge. What does Jesus say to the apostles back in Matthew? You will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So he says, I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. Of course, everybody's like, well, what is all that? Don't got time for it today. Moving on. They came to life, notice this, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Anybody who has followed Jesus, anybody who has sacrificed, anybody who has even gone to the extent of being martyred for their faith, they come back to life in this time and rule with Christ for 1,000 years, minimally speaking. It's probably, the term is probably used to denote a really long period of time, probably longer than 1,000 years. Don't have any certainty over those things. The promise is, and everybody looks at it like, well, what you're talking about is the new heavens and the new earth. No, not yet. This is chapter 20. New heavens and new earth don't show up until chapter 21. Satan is going to be bound for a thousand years. Then he's going to be let out one last time. There's one last battle, commonly referred to as Armageddon. Then a new heavens, then a new earth. Which means... And he goes on, in case you missed it, verse 5, the rest of the dead, that is, those who were not followers of Christ, did not come to life until a thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. That word there, resurrection, guess what? Same word used in Matthew. Regeneration, polygenesis, to come back into being, to come back into existence. This is the first resurrection, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection over such the second death has no power. They will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Knowing that what Jesus means is a real rule with him in this time period that will extend for at least a thousand years. Knowing that that's the thrust of what he's saying, listen to it a second time. Truly I say to you, in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. You who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging to 12 tribes of Israel. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Better way to render that last phrase there, based on the actual Greek wording, you will receive and inherit eternity. His statement is now in this time. People say, I'd like to go skydiving before I die. Why? Because I'd like the thrill of falling from 20,000 feet and then floating on a parachute the last little way. That sounds like fun. Okay, some of you are like, no, it doesn't sound like fun. <laughs> You're crazy. Now, I'm going to tell you why it doesn't sound like fun, because there's that infinitesimally small chance that when you go to pull the ripcord, it doesn't pull. 
and the shoot doesn't come out. Which is why I say to you, that's a great thing to have on your bucket list, but do you know when would be a better time to chance that falling from 20,000 feet out of a perfectly good airplane? When you know you can't die a second time. I say, I'd like to go down to Grand Forks and jump off that bridge into an unknown depth of water. YOLO. No, no, no. You are living again. The idea that we have is that we won't recognize the new heavens and new earth. They'll be totally new, totally new experiences. And our opportunity to have experiences here and now in this life is limited until the moment we die. No. Christ's teaching in this passage is that you will die. And I don't know how long history goes on. The Bible never says. Kamloops undoubtedly will change. They'll probably build a new mall or new grocery stores. The streets will probably change ever so slightly. But the promise from Scripture is that there is a period of time coming in which you come back from the dead. These hills, these trees, these streets that you currently walk on, you will walk them again. And the difference is you won't be tired trying to get up them. The experiences that you can experience now, you have opportunity to experience them again, which means when you say the most significant thing that I want to do before I die is jump out of an airplane or go jump in a river or whatever experience, you know, jump in a dune buggy and drive across the Sahara Desert, whatever experience, fill in the blank. You think you only have a limited amount of time to do those things, but that's not true. As a Christian, you have a millennium waiting for you in which you can experience those things. There's one thing that you only have a limited amount of time to do. Entering into 2016, there is only one thing that should be on your bucket list. Surrendering all to Christ and following if I could tell you some things that you should put on your bucket list, I would say you should put it on your bucket list just once in your life to try and go two weeks fasting and praying. Some of you are like, mm, just try it. If I could put something on your bucket list, I'd say make it your priority to lead your neighbor to Christ, if at all possible. I encounter Christians who spend an, an, inordinate, an inordinate amount of time planning out their vacation. They're going to go here, they're going to do there, they're going to do this. Not, nothing necessarily wrong with that, but there's not a corresponding plan. There's not a corresponding attention to detail to say, how am I going to get my neighbor to church this year? If there's one thing that I could say should be on your bucket list, one of the greatest pleasures of my life, you want to be in the baptistry with somebody that you've led to faith. You want to be able to dunk them under that water and to know that for all of eternity it's different because of your efforts with Christ to bring someone to salvation. Vacations are great. Crazy experiences are nice. You have lots of time. The window for salvation is short. Make sure the right priorities are on your bucket list. Let's pray.